From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Hello, friends. My name is Joseph Backholm. I'm a senior fellow for Biblical Worldview and Strategic Engagement at Family Research Council, and it is my pleasure to be sitting in for Tony today. He will be back in the chair with you tomorrow. Until then, some important things to discuss together. Today on the show, much attention is being given to the human rights atrocities being committed in Ukraine, and appropriately so. But the U.S. says a genocide is being conducted in a different part of the world. Where is it? And what is being done to stop it? We'll talk about that today. In addition, the Republican governor of Indiana has just vetoed a bill that would have prevented men from participating in women's sports. What was he thinking? We'll talk to, an in, to the Indiana state legislator who was the sponsor of the bill that the governor vetoed coming up in the program. At the end of the show, can, a, can you be a gay conservative? An announcement by right-wing commentator Dave Rubin that he and his partner are expecting two babies via surrogacy have sparked a lot of conversations about what it means to be conservative, as well as whether people are more attached to their tribe than they are to the church. Professor Carl Truman will join us for that important conversation. But our top story today... Judge Kentaji Brown Jackson, President Biden's pick for the Supreme Court, faced hours of grilling today on day two of her four-day confirmation hearings before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Senators on both sides of the aisle agree that the Supreme Court confirmation hearings have been civil so far. And several senators stressed the importance of treating people respectfully despite differences of opinion. Here's part of what Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina had to say about how we should treat nominees. But it just appalls me that we can have such a system in America that if a conservative woman wants to stand out and say, I love my family just as much as you love yours, and my faith means just as much to me as it does you, that all of a sudden there comes some kind of weirdo. And a guy like Justice Alito, who's in the same type situation you're in, being in a group, doesn't agree with everything they do or what people may say at a meeting he didn't go to, all of a sudden they own it. You know, this stuff needs to stop. Our people deserve better respect, and I hope when this is over, people will say you were at least well treated, even if we don't agree with you. Joining me now to talk about what else we learned from today's hearing is Catherine Beck-Johnson, Research Fellow for Legal and Policy Studies at Family Research Council. Catherine, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Joseph. Well, tell us how you would describe the events of today. I think civil is an excellent word to describe it. And the Republican senators have really been stressing just how different this hearing is versus the two most recent ones, Justice Barrett and Justice Kavanaugh. For Justice Kavanaugh, Senator Grassley could hardly get through his opening remarks as there were protesters long before any of the accusations had occurred. There were protesters with Justice Barrett. We remember lots of protesters dressed as handmaidens outside 
the the room. And so this is very different. There's no protesters. There's no screaming. There's no shouting. There's no accusations of her personal life. It's very much just the nuts and bolts. Here's, is this your judicial philosophy? Is this what you did as a lawyer at the Sentencing Commission? And she's treated as a professional, as a judge, and as a nominee to the Supreme Court of the United States, not as some, as Senator Graham just said, as some weirdo. So it's very much a large contrast between between how the Democratic nominee is being treated versus how the Republican nominees have been treated. Catherine, do you think part of the reason these hearings may be different than the most recent two other confirmation hearings we've been through is the fact that this does not tend, this is not uh, going to change the balance of power on the court. This is essentially one liberal replacing another liberal. Do you think that emotions might be uh, lower simply because Generally speaking, the status quo balance of power will remain on the court. I think that certainly could be a large portion of it. But I also think even before that, Justice Kavanaugh, when he was a judge, he was known as a more moderate judge. He wasn't one of the far right's picks initially. So when he was replacing Justice Kennedy, who was also a swing vote, it almost was though we were getting a swing vote for a swing vote. And so the fact that you know, Judge Jackson is being treated just as a liberal for a liberal, could be playing into it. But we saw the Democrats playing this game even when it was trading essentially apples for apples. So I think this is just a tactic of the left, how they think it's acceptable to treat nominees versus how the right approaches the nominees. I think that's a fair point. And I think uh, to put this entire process in context, many of the left's biggest victories policy-wise have not gone through Congress They have gone through the Supreme Court. They have a lot at stake at the Supreme Court. Things like abortion, Roe versus Wade, same-sex marriage with Obergefell, did not go through Congress. Nobody accountable to the people voted on those issues. They were simply decreed or invented by the Supreme Court. They do have a lot invested in what happens at the Supreme Court, which might be part of the reason why they care so much about these confirmation processes. Now, Catherine, I want to get into some of the questions that she was asked as we try to understand who she is, what her judicial philosophy would be. Here's an interaction she had with Senator Cornyn. Let's go ahead and play clip one, and then I want to get your reaction. When the Supreme Court decides that something that is not even in the Constitution is a fundamental right and no state can pass any law that conflicts with the Supreme Court's edict, particularly in an area where people have sincerely held religious beliefs, doesn't that necessarily create a conflict between what people may believe is a matter of their religious doctrine or faith and what the federal government says is the law of the land? Well, Senator, that is the nature of a right, that um, when there is a right, um, it means that there are limitations on regulation, even if uh, people are regulating pursuant to their sincerely held religious beliefs. Catherine, what's your reaction to her perspective on the nature of rights and the potential of conflict with the government? was troubling to me. She didn't seem to even recognize that there is a tension between the rightly held religious belief that marriage is between a man and a woman versus the Obergefell decision handed down by the Supreme Court. 
There certainly is a tension, and that tension is being manifested every day in our country when we look at cases like Masterpiece Cake Shop, are people being forced to bake cakes for mar- for gay marriages? And so this is an ongoing question in our society, the very tension of the religious view that has been deeply and sincerely held for as long as time versus this new Obergefell decision. And the fact that she simply only wanted to address that this is a right and there there is nothing our deeply held religious view can infringe upon that for really show that she does not even remotely understand the views of millions of Americans, the religious views of millions of Americans, and that she didn't even seem to be wanting to grapple with the tension there. So I viewed this as a very troubling answer to Senator Cornyn. But I think her perspective does represent the mainstream progressive view on this issue. They genuinely have no understanding of why someone wouldn't want to, uh, for example, participate in a same-sex wedding. And so there's not much sympathy for that situation. And there's certainly no interest in, in suggesting that the First Amendment protects your right not to do things you don't want to do, not to say things you don't want to say. I want to get into another topic. Uh, she was asked about court packing as well. Let's play clip four, and I want to get your reaction to that. It is a policy question for Congress, and I am particularly mindful of of not speaking to policy issues because I am so committed to staying in my lane of the system. Catherine Beck-Johnson, is that a fair, fair response to the question? This was a, another troubling answer from her. She very clearly can say that court packing is wrong. Justice Ginsburg spoke out on it, one of the farthest left justices on the court. Justice Breyer, who Judge Jackson will be replacing, has spoken out on it. There is no infringement on the independent judiciary Supreme Court to say that court packing is wrong. Many justices have spoken out on it on the left and the right. It is stronger when the sitting justices work to protect the institution of the court. And if she's going to be a sitting justice on the court, she should have no problem working to protect it rather than saying that she's just going to be neutral on the topic. So this was, again, a very troubling answer from her. Catherine, on the issue of court packing, of course, this entire confirmation process is taking place in a political environment. If she were to oppose court packing like Justice Breyer had, like Justice Ginsburg had, she would face tremendous opposition from the her own base, from the base of the left. Do you think they would actually oppose her nomination? Because it seems the support for court packing on the left is as strong as the opposition to court packing on the right is. That's an interesting question, Joseph. It's hard to know. I mean, I think the fact that she's towing the line and not speaking out against it very much shows who her base is, who her support's coming from. So it isn't groundbreaking to think that they would retaliate against her if she dare spoke out against their wishes and demands. It's hard to know exactly, of course, what would happen. Catherine, I know we have several more days of questioning that are going to take place here. There have been some concerns expressed about her views on things like critical race theory. Also, concerns about her views on sentencing. And Senator Hawley has raised seven specific cases involving child pornographers where it's his belief that she was too soft. Did those issues come up today? 
Some of them did. And I think that, again, the White House is withholding lots and lots and lots of documents on her time at the Sentencing Commission. So what Senator Hawley has exposed is just the very surface of what is public and what we've been able to gain access to. But like I said, the White House is withholding many documents. So it's hard to know exactly how in-depth it is and what exactly we can ask her about. And keep in mind, this is the same party that said that Justice Kavanaugh was being rushed through and they weren't able to review all the documents. Whereas here they are intentionally withholding lots of documents. So it'll be interesting to see the questions over the next tomorrow, especially based on what information we are able to access. Catherine, tell us a bit more about that. What documents have not been withheld and are, is anything being done in an effort to get those documents? There's a lot of documents from her time at the Sentencing Commission. So here we see while she was at the Sentencing Commission, she was very lenient with child sex offenders. We obviously don't know what the White House is hiding, what they're withholding, but it seems it would be things that they think would be damaging to her public image. And as we have already come up with, as you said, seven instances of her being very lenient with child sex predator sentencing, then it leads us to believe that there's more very, very soft on criminal actions of her time at the Sentencing Commission. And the American people deserve to know what her views are on criminals as crime is rising in our country. Catherine, it's early in the process. In just a few seconds, has anyone declared their opposition or support to Judge Jackson yet? Right now, it's very early in the process. The Republicans are trying to tell her that they are giving her a fair shake and that they're going to wait until they've all met with her and her hearings. But I think it's very clear to know where most of the, the senators lie just based on her judicial philosophy. Catherine Big Johnson, thanks so much for your time as always. Thanks for having me. Coming up next... The U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, has officially made the determination that the armed forces of Burma are committing genocide against the country's Rohingya Muslim minority. What does this mean? We'll t- Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We have reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. American men are conflicted as to what their role is in society. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of purpose as revealed in the Bible. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, He addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain, and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them on to the next generation. Get your copy of Man to Man wherever books are sold. Here's a moment of hope for your home with Jerry and Becky Drace. Parents, have your children ever said, why can't we just get along in this family? Well, listen to John 14, verse 27. My peace I give unto you, not the peace of the world. That's when right. there's family discord adding to the violence and unrest in the world around us, it makes you wonder where can peace be found. This can keep children upset. Children struggle when there's arguing and angry words expressed at home. It unsettles their life. You need to constantly reinforce to them that God will sort out the issues. You know, inviting Jesus into your home and resting in Him will bring peace. 
when people do not look to Jesus, everything spins out of control. So teach your children to rest in Him. Lasting peace is found only in Jesus. Learn more about the ministry of Jerry and Becky Drace, including evangelism with integrity, devotions, articles, and more at hopeforthehome.org. This has been a moment of hope for your home. Hi, this is Steve Tiber with 8 Days of Hope. As many of you know, Hurricane Ida devastated Louisiana in August, making landfall as a Category 4 hurricane, leaving thousands of families in need of hope. Do you know it's been three years since 8 Days of Hope deployed on a rebuilding trip where we help hundreds of families rebuild their homes for free? But today I've got some exciting news. We're announcing that 8 Days of Hope 17 is going to take place in Laplace, Louisiana from April 9th through the 16th, bringing hope to those who are feeling hopeless. We're going to be doing roofing and drywall painting and so much more. If you'd love to use your gifts to serve those in need, go to our website, 8daysofhope.com. As always, it's free to volunteer with us. Food and lodging are provided. And again, if you're looking to be the hands and feet of Jesus, join us in April when we go to Laplace, Louisiana during 8 Days of Hope 17. Again, for more information about this outreach or any arm of the ministry, go to 8daysofhope.com. That's 8daysofhope.com. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. Reminder that you can find this and every episode of Washington Watch at TonyPerkins.com. The world's attention is focused on Ukraine, but yesterday at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C., U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken announced the State Department's conclusion that the armed forces of Burma are committing genocide and crimes against humanity against the country's Rohingya Muslim minority. Here's what he had to say. Beyond the Holocaust, the United States has concluded that genocide was committed seven times. Today marks the eighth, as I have determined that members of the Burmese military committed genocide and crimes against humanity against Rohingya. So what does this genocide determination mean moving forward? Joining me now to talk about this is my colleague, Ariel Del Turco, FRC's Assistant Director of the Center for Religious Liberty. Ariel, good to see you. Good to be with you. Now, tell us a bit about what is happening in Burma. So the Rohingya genocide, it occurred mostly in 2016 and 2017 when the Burmese military targeted a uh, religious and ethnic minority. They're mostly Muslims and they live in one distinct area. Um, they targeted the Rohingya people for um, genocide and extermination. So they would burn villages, um, kill men, women, and children in horrific and brutal ways. Um, they would torture people, rape people. So this was really um, a grave, grave atrocity. And it sent many Rohingya people fleeing to neighboring Bangladesh where almost a million of them still reside in um, a refugee camp. Uh, the country really doesn't want to take them, but they're really not safe to go back to Burma with uh, this same military in control. So they're sort of stuck in limbo. So this is what the U.S. government was officially determining is genocide today. And this was a really good call. So Ariel, you say most of this happened in 2016 and 17. Has it taken the United States government this long to simply recognize it or has something more recently developed? 
Well, the genocide determination is a legal determination. Uh, so they look at evidence and um, the Secretary of State is in charge of whether or not he uh, feels it's sufficient to rule a genocide. Unfortunately, often politics play a part. There may have been regional dynamics where um, administrations haven't wanted to be too hard on Burma as a country um, that is close to China and we need allies in that region. Or maybe we didn't want to be too hard on that country um, in their fledging democracy. Um, however, now it's beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Burmese military it's up to no good. The military, since uh, the genocide, um, had a coup in the country and took over um, the admittedly weak democracy that was there. Uh, so there's really nothing holding the U.S. government back anymore from calling this a genocide. And that's really important because it really um, honors the people that uh, suffered and died and wanted uh, the pain to be recognized. Ariel, a lot of things motivate violence like this. And Sadly, this is not the only place in the world this is taking place. Is this motivated by racism, religious oppression? Is it tribal? What's happening in that part of the world that's that's caused the violence that's led to the genocide determination? Well, sadly, it might be a little bit of all of the above. Burma, actually, that country has been in a civil war almost since its founding when um, the British released it from being a colony. It's almost seven decades now of a scattered civil war, and it's mostly this um, military against its ethnic minorities. And in addition to the Rohingya people, we see mostly uh, Christian minorities being targeted by this violence as well. Uh, we have many Karin Christians and Kachin Christians there, uh, mostly made up of Baptists and Catholics. So a lot of people are caught up in this really senseless violence between ethnic groups there, and it's very unfortunate. Ariel, what do we know about the Burmese military that is conducting this genocide? Is this purely about keeping power? Are, they, are there, are there counter-strikes? Is there violence against the current military rule? Or are they just wantonly and needlessly just killing people just because they can well, it's certainly about power, and we saw that when they took over the democracy in a coup and they imprisoned all the democratic leaders. That's clearly about power, but it's also sadly about these ethnic tensions between groups there. Um, many of these ethnic groups, they want greater uh, autonomousness from uh, the main government, and they really should be uh, left alone a little bit more and given a little bit more freedom. Um, but instead, we're seeing these leaders uh, hungry with power, seeking to crush them at all costs, and honestly, targeting the civilian population almost indiscriminately. They're not just targeting insurgents. The Burmese military is really bad, and they deserve to have their actions called out as genocide, and they deserve to be targeted by world leaders as human rights abusers. And let's talk a bit about that. What is the significance of the official determination that this is, in fact, a genocide? Well, firstly, it's very symbolic. The United States uh, very sparingly uses its genocide determinations and does so very carefully. So for the U.S. to make this decision at all is a very big deal. Um, but also for countries around the world, it signals a call for action. Uh, the United States and many countries is party to the 1948 Genocide Convention, and that calls all the signing countries 
to a twofold responsibility to prevent and punish genocide. So sadly, this genocide has already mostly occurred and we're dealing with the ramifications as um, these people in these um, refugee camps need help. But even though we can't prevent genocide here, we can punish it. So the United States can take greater action to uh, punish the perpetrators. And hopefully this inspires other countries to get on board and to call this a genocide as well. I think that's going to build international momentum about this. Ariel, we only have about 30 seconds left, but to that point, is the international community rallying around the victims of this Holocaust like they are, for example, uh, refugees from Ukraine? Not yet, sadly. And it's dominated, unfortunately, by the 24-7 news cycle that only takes interest in specific things. I think a lot of Americans might not know about Burma or the problems there, um, but I'm glad that we can raise awareness about it on this program. As am I an area, we appreciate your time and your diligence in tracking these issues so you can bring them to our attention and we can pray uh, that Jesus will intervene on behalf of the innocent in that situation. And thank you for your time today so much. Thank you for having me. We will continue to track this issue, but coming up, Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb, who is a Republican, vetoed a women's sports bill. What happened? We'll talk to the sponsor of the bill when. Here's Dan Celia with today's Stewardship Moment. We need to remember as we accumulate and acquire possessions and wealth and have the ability to earn a living that none of us can acquire anything without the help and the blessing of God. We need to remember what God said to the children of Israel through Moses in Deuteronomy 8.18. But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth. As we consider our stewardship and all that God has given us, remember who gives us the ability to produce wealth. You've just heard a stewardship moment with Dan Celia of Financial Issues Ministry, helping you plan, live, and invest wisely. For more information, log on to financialissues.org. That's financialissues.org. Here are Tim and Riley Wildman for the AFA Foundation. Riley, what is your title? The director of AFA Foundation. One of the best ways you can have income for the rest of your life and know that uh, you will be supporting the ministry of American Family Association is to... To give a gift to American Family Association and American Family Radio. Do you also deal with people who want to leave AFA in their wills? Yes, sir. That's exactly why they call. And that's why we also have another option besides a charitable gift annuity. People sometimes also call and do an outright gift or also leave us in their will. Now, when anyone calls in and asked to talk to you ladies. Will all of them talk in a southern accent like you do? Yes, they will. (laughs) Call Riley Wildman at the AFA Foundation, 800-326-4543, extension 345, or visit afafoundation.net. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm. I'm sitting in for Tony today. Tony will be back with you tomorrow. Yesterday, Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb vetoed a bill that would have limited K-12 through girls' sports in the state to only girls and not boys who identify as girls. 
the Republican governor, claimed that the effort to protect the integrity and fairness of women's sports is, quote, a worthy cause for sure, end quote, but said the bill, quote, leaves too many unanswered questions, end quote. So joining me now to give some clarity on this bill is its author, Representative Michelle Davis. Representative Davis, welcome to Washington Watch. Hi, nice to be here. Thank you. We are glad to have you. First, just tell us about what your bill does. So House Bill 1041 came from listening to our constituents with lots of different um, conversations. Um, It it ensures that we keep the integrity of female sports here in Indiana. So a biological male um, will compete on a biological male team and a biological female will compete in a biological female team. And in Indiana, we have um, the Athletic Association, IHSAA, that already has um, these participation guidelines set up. Um, so it just ensures that we follow um, those rules that they have determined already for participation. Was it difficult to get this through the Indiana legislature? It wasn't difficult to get it through the House side. Um, had lots of support from the very beginning. Um, and the chairman of education, Chairman Baining, was very open and very supportive of forgiving, for getting it a hearing in the education on the House side, um, went through there, um, went through our House um, floor. We did make an amendment to amend the um, college part out of the bill. And we did amend the grievance process um, that we had in it at the beginning after talking with IHSAA um, we decided that we would follow their or their protest procedures that they already have in place that have been working. Um, so after we made those, it, um, it went well, pretty much party lines um, through the House side. So the legislature passed the bill. What was your reaction to Governor Holcomb's veto of the bill? Were you surprised? I, I was totally shocked at um, the veto of the bill. Um, The last thing I had heard um, from Governor Holcomb was an interview where he had said boys should play with boys and girls should play with boys. Um, I've never had a conversation with him about the bill, though, Uh, but that was an interview that I had heard. So when I got the call last night, I was completely shocked. What are the factors that you think contributed to this? What was his justification for the veto? Um, When I asked the reasoning, and again, I was talking to one of his assistants, um, so I haven't actually spoken to him, um, but two of the reasons were, one, he wasn't or they weren't comfortable with the grievance language um, that's in the bill, and then the threat um, from ACLU to file suit against against Indiana um, was the other concern he had, according to his assistant. That's a common concern expressed on these bills. I know Christy Noam in South Dakota expressed similar concerns. Indiana itself is not necessarily a stranger to issues like these. I know that Governor Pence, if memory serves, it was 2014-ish that there was a Religious Freedom Restoration Act bill passed there by the legislature that was vetoed. Was this due to pressure from from the business community, they often get involved. Do you have any any reason to think there were other pressures involved in what the governor's actually saying publicly? 
I wouldn't know. I, I, like I said, I haven't had a conversation with him, so I, I don't know what kind of other pressure he's getting. Um, I just know on my end, on representing um, District 58, and as well as most Hoosiers I talk to, um, and the feedback I've gotten on the bill, it's a very supportive, um, it has a lot of support from the Hoosiers and from my constituents, as well as my colleagues in both the Senate and the House side. Um, so it, it's disappointing, and um, I believe we have plans to come back to override the veto, which is a good thing. Yeah. And tell us about that. I know that Indiana is unique in, in the ability to override the veto. What are your plans? What's your uh, what are your prospects for success in overriding the veto? Sure. Great question. Um, so I've spoken with the Speaker of the House, um, uh, Speaker Houston, already. We spoke last night. Um, he was just as shocked as I was about the veto and we have a day set in May, May 24th, where we come back to do a technical correction day. And in our Indiana code, we can also override vetoes on that day as well. Um, and the speaker and I um, came out already today with plans. We have support from our um, representative, our Republican colleagues that we will, um, we have the support, we will override as well as the Senate as well. So that's our plan. Representative Davis, we appreciate your diligence on this. We know that anyone who leads on this issue requires courage to do so, and we know that you've taken the heat for it. But on behalf of my daughters and all the daughters in America, we are grateful to you for doing so. And thank you also for your time today. Thank you. I'm happy to do it, and I will continue to be a champion for female athletics. Thank you. Thank you so much. God bless you. And the timing of that is interesting because of all the attention uh, in recent days and weeks that Leah Thomas has received, it seems that the noodle needle is moving against men participating in women's sports. But the governor of Indiana, at least, seems not to agree on that point. Coming up, what is a conservative? Should Christians try to be conservative and is it possible to be a gay conservative? We'll talk to Carl Truman, who says the answer is. Today, moral relativism and political correctness are assaulting truth. How can the world have hope when believers themselves aren't clear on the authority of the Bible? The Church of Jesus Christ always faces a tremendous temptation to deviate from the word of God. The God who speaks clearly expresses God's intent in giving us his word and the response that is demanded of those who hear. Nobody ever encounters God and says, that was boring and irrelevant. When people say that about the Bible, it just says to me, they've not encountered the God of the Bible. Our faith is rooted in history and, and consequently we need to use the evidence and never be afraid of it. The God Who Speaks is a feature-linked documentary from the American Family Association which could bolster your confidence in the Word of God. Churches really need to see this, really need to understand what the Bible actually is. Available now at thegodwhospeaks.org. In His Image, delighting in God's plan for gender and sexuality. I loved it. I loved how biblically sound it was, all the scripture to back it up. The testimonies were very powerful. If it's a prodigal child that has just run away, or one that's caught up in same-sex attraction, there's hope. 
in Jesus. In His Image is now available on DVD and can be purchased in bulk to pass out to friends and family. Order today by visiting afastore.net. The world in word pictures viewed through the love of Christ. Well, some of the people that I met, there was no way in the world we could meet with any Christians in North Korea. That would have been a death sentence for them. And so it was in northern Manchuria where they had escaped. And the story from all of them was that three generations of their families were wiped out if they were even caught with the Bible. The cruelty is just incomprehensible. Listen to Sandy Rios weekday mornings at 7 Central on American Family Radio. Two young children were once overheard after leaving their class at church. Do you really believe that stuff about the devil? One child asked. The other child replied, No, I think it's like Santa Claus. It's really your dad. Hello, I'm Sam Rohr with another Stand in the Gap Minute. The Bible's teaching about the devil is true, but we can easily be deceived into misunderstanding his work. In John 8:44, Jesus called the devil a liar and the father of lies. He knew Satan's agenda is filled with deception. The devil will either twist the truth, deny the truth, or change the truth in tempting us. He can fool us into believing that he does not exist so that we don't need to worry about him. At other times, he may pretend to be all-powerful. We must be always aware of his deception to stand firm in our walk with God. Discover more at AmericanPastorsNetwork.net. Welcome back, friends, to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting for Tony. It is my pleasure to be with you today. As highlighted in the last segment on Indiana's governor vetoing a bill protecting girls' sports, it isn't necessarily true that someone who is a Republican is a conservative. Now, another case in point, the announcement on Sunday by right-wing pundit Dave Rubin about babies he's expecting through surrogacy with his same-sex partner. All this begs the question, what does it mean to be a conservative? And how important is it to be conservative? Joining me now for this discussion is Dr. Carl Truman, professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College, He's also the author of The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, which is, in my opinion, one of the most important books written in recent years. And he's out with a new book titled Strange New World, How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked the Sexual Revolution. That book hit bookshelves today. So hustle to your local bookshelves or your local Amazon depot and pick it up. Dr. Truman, welcome back to Washington Watch. Uh, Great. Thanks for having me back on. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it is truly one of the highlights of my week every time I get to talk to you. Now, I want to get into this Dave Rubin conversation, but before we do, bigger picture, you're out with a book today about, uh, it's called Strange New World, How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked the Sexual Revolution. What point are you trying to make in that book? Well, the book is in some ways, it's a precy of the bigger book that you mentioned, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, and an extension of some of the arguments there. And the basic point I'm trying to make is that to understand the dramatic changes in society, particularly the dramatic changes in how we understand ourselves, particularly relative to sexual identity, things like that, need to be said in a broader cultural context. The revolution seems to be happening very fast, but the causes for it really go back a long, long way. 
And understanding those causes helps us pause and respond to the situations we now find ourselves in. You talk a lot about the importance of expressive individualism, that concept, especially as it relates to sexuality and the value that culture has given to the ability for someone to essentially do whatever they want sexually, provided, of course, the qualification is you're not hurting someone else. How did that become such an important value culturally? It's a, it's a difficult story to tell in 30 seconds, but essentially what happened is over the last 300 years, we've granted more and more authority to our feelings, to our inner space. And we've come to see happiness as being constituted by our ability to express those inner feelings outwardly. And we've also come to focus upon happiness, meaning psychological contentment, a warm, fuzzy feeling inside as being the the primary point of of human flourishing. Now, the sexual dimension of that has come in relatively late in the last uh, four or five decades. But what modern society has done is it's taken that psychologized self, that psychologized notion of happiness, and taking a cue from Freud, really, said the the, the most perfect way of achieving that happiness is, is sexual satisfaction. Now, this is a point that you make in part in a column you've written this week uh, for World Opinions, and I'll give a brief plug for World Opinions, because World Opinions, it's a new project of World Magazine, which people are familiar with. It has brilliant writers like you and many others, and it has less brilliant writers like your illustrious guest host of Washington Watch. But <laughs> Carl, this the, the point that you make in the article is prompted by what happened with Dave Rubin. And some people may not be familiar with him. He's a right-wing commentator. He actually has a lot of good insight, wisdom, understanding of the left. He used to be on the left. He understands the risks of wokeness and leftism generally. But he also is a man who identifies as gay. He makes no bones about it. He's proud of it. And he made an announcement this week that he and his same-sex partner are expecting two children via surrogacy. A lot of people on the right, including a lot of social conservatives, were quick to congratulate him. What was your concern there? Well, my concern is that the logic of of gay surrogacy is essentially the logic of transgenderism. It's uh, denying the the biological nature of reproduction. It's denying the biological distinction between the sexes. And it's seeing uh, natural physical limits vis-a-vis male and female as something that can be technologically overcome. So it's an extremely revolutionary and iconoclastic uh, attitude. It may be couched as it was in in Dave Rubin's announcement in the, the aesthetics of traditional family. You had a picture of the happy couple holding up ultrasound scans for, for Twitter, for a Twitter pose, that kind of thing. The aesthetics, the outward trappings were very traditional. But the inner core of what's going on is actually explosively revolutionary. Because of that, why is it, do you think, that so many people who, if you had asked them in a vacuum, is it a good idea for people to rent wombs, to go through IVF, to have somebody else bear a child and then give it to other people, uh, none of whom are it's going to be its biological mother, they would say, no, that's not a good idea. But why, when it's attached to someone they know and like, does it become something they publicly celebrate? Well, on one level, you can you can sympathize with that as, as a person. You 
who wants other people to be unhappy? Who wants somebody to be miserable? That's really the air that we breathe and the culture we live in. It's the expressive individual culture that we find ourselves in at this point. And to to cast aspersions to to on somebody else's happiness, to pour, to rain on their parade seems mean-minded and small-minded. And I think that our instincts are to affirm somebody when they seem to be happy, they don't seem to be harming anybody else, uh, we should affirm them. The problem is, of course, that gay surrogacy, uh, on one level, I'm sure people are thinking, well, this is a private matter between Dave Rubin and his partner. Well, on one level it is, but on another level, it's, it embodies a whole philosophy of gender and reproduction, and it embodies a whole philosophical attitude to what and who children are and, and what they are for. Carl Truman, what do you think the future would look like if literally everyone followed the example of Dave Rubin and his partner and had children created in test tubes, carried by other people, and then essentially adopted after they were born? I think it would be highly problematic. Uh, we know that children have a have a desire to know who their biological parents are. We know that biology is powerful. And this is not in saying this, I'm not casting aspersions on, on the love that any surrogate parent may have uh, for a child born through surrogacy or any parent may have for a child that they've adopted. Uh, but we know that the normal and natural way of having children is two people producing the child together and having a strong and powerful emotional and biological link to that child. So I think if we if we had a world where, say, everybody is produced by surrogacy, you attenuate the natural bond of parents to children. I don't know where that will lead, but I'm sure it will not be as good a world as the one that we live in where natural childbirth is the, the primary means of producing children. And that is a point that you make in your article this week, that this is not the only context in which surrogacy has been kind of glorified as a good thing, because other thinkers have thought this is a way to level the playing field for men and women in kind of the feminist debate, that what we need to do is take away the, the quote unquote disability that women have by being the vehicles through which life have to come into the world. We can level that if we just bring children into the world artificially. But there are consequences, aren't there, if we all decide that we have a different path than the one God created to bring people into the world. But again, I want to drill down a little bit further on why it is that conservatives, including Christian conservatives, have this instinct to uh, applaud and cheer when someone we know, someone we like, something like this is happening. Do you think it's, it is, um, is it tribalism? Is it the sense that that's somebody that's on my team, so I'm going to support what he's doing? Or is it just this personal, I don't want to be a bad guy. I don't want to be mean. I think it's a variety of factors. I think tribalism plays a part of it. We we all tend to be a little more tolerant of the sins of the people that we like, as opposed to the sins of those we don't like. Uh, I think it's part of our culture that we want to affirm people uh, in being happy. I think there's also that strong, uh, I don't know how to describe it, maybe libertarian streak where we, we look at uh, Dave Rubin and think, well, what he's doing isn't, isn't harming anybody. What right have I got to judge? What right have I got to say, no, that's wrong? And that's, that's not a, 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 a necessarily incorrect feeling. We don't want to always be interfering in other people's lives. I think the point here is, though, that we've got to think more broadly about what's going on, that there are social ramifications 
of this kind of thing that need to be taken into account. One of them, of course, is you know surrogacy creates a way of thinking about children, makes a way of imagining what children are that I think pushes them towards more being a commodity, uh, pushes them towards existing for the happiness and the fulfillment of the parents. Now, hopefully children fulfill us and make us happy. That's, again, not a bad thing, but that's not the primary purpose of children, I don't think. As a parent, um, children, there, most days children make us happy and fulfill us, but there are days when it is challenging to be sure. Now, one of the one of the challenges about this situation and all of these situations when we're dealing with things like surrogacy and gay adoption is I have no doubt in my mind that somebody like Dave Rubin has the absolute best intentions, that his hopes and dreams for these children who are coming to the world are all good. And I have every belief that he intends to sacrifice, as all parents do, for their benefit. Why is that not enough? It's not enough for, for the reasons I've sort of outlined, if you like. I think that, that having children is not just a private affair. How we conceptualize families, how we bring children into the world, uh, how we treat children, how we think of children, what rights we grant to children, what status we see them as having, these are not matters of, of mere private concern. They're matters of pressing public concern and should be matters of, of pressing public policy. And I would say that the logic of gay adoption really leaves us with nothing uh, to defend ourselves over against transgender ideology, for example. Uh, when we make the biological process of uh, reproduction, when we make the, the male-female distinction, the male-female bond, when we make that very thin, attenuated, or we abolish it altogether then we have no philosophical basis for opposing the most extreme uh, excesses of the, of the trans movement. Dave Rubin may not be wanting to go there, uh, but the problem is by using technology to overcome nature's limits on this front, we set a dangerous precedent for using technology to overcome nature's limits on all fronts. Carl Truman, I want to talk a little bit about the political kind of underpinnings of this conversation as well, because the article you wrote again in World Magazine this week is gay conservatism is a contradiction in terms is the headline. Now, this idea of gay conservatism, define that term for me. If you think it's a contradiction of terms, what do you mean by conservatism? Well, that's part of the problem. I think there is no consensus today on what conservatism means. Does it mean a kind of populism? Does it mean right-wing libertarianism? Uh, I'm operating with a model of conservatism that sees it as something that respects tradition, respects natural limits, respects traditional institutions, uh, and sees those things as having an authority that transcend that of the individual and require the individual to conform to some degree to those things. I suspect the kind of conservatism that uh, a, a gay conservative would hold to would have to tilt more in a, a radical libertarian kind of direction. Now, whether one calls that conservatism or not might be a matter of linguistic choice, 
but it's not the traditional form of conservatism that we say we find in an Edmund Burke or we find most uh, beautifully articulated, I think, in, in, in our generation in the writings of Sir Roger Scruton, the great English philosopher. So yeah, it may depend on how you define conservatism, but to me, a conservatism that has no respect for natural limits, for traditions, no respect for authority, no desire to see change done only incrementally is not really a true conservatism. Now, Carl, to your point, and I agree with you that there may not be a shared definition of conservatism anymore and what a conservative is, but I think for Christians, it's more important that we not try to be conservative, but that we try to think like Christians. And the fact that we may not have a shared definition of what conservative means suggests there could be error in trying to be conservative. And there does seem to be some jockeying within political circles in some cases. We want to be the most conservative or we want to be the least conservative. Is that problematic if we are trying to be more or less conservative rather than just trying to be biblical? Yes, and I think that's, that most obviously uh, is exemplified by the attitude to, the uncritical attitude to voting. I've always said, you know, that when a Christian goes to the polls and ticks one box or the other, it's always a trade-off, that we should never put our trust in princes. We should never uncritically follow one political leader or another. We've got to vote one way or the other. But we should always realize that as Christians, we sort of vote with dirty hands, if you like. Somebody's got to rule the country. We should have a say in that. But we should not so identify one figure or one party manifesto with the Christian faith that we end up secularizing the Christian faith. We end up tying the Christian faith to a deeply flawed human ideology at that point. And that's exactly the point we should end on here. Carl Truman, we thank you so much for your time. And again, I'm going to encourage everybody to go get his latest book just out today, Strange New World. Get it wherever you get your books. Carl Truman, you are a gift to all of us, and we appreciate your time today very much. Thanks for being with us. And friends, we as we reach the end of the program, just want to find, drill down on that last point. It's not the goal for Christians to be progressive. It's not the goal for Christians to be conservative. In different times, in different eras, those have meant different things. Sometimes Christians must advocate for change in order to get us back to scripture. Sometimes we have to protect the status quo in, in order to get us closer to truth, which is why we always seek to be biblical above all else. Friends, we'll see you tomorrow. Until then, fear God and nothing else. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.